Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We've got a great show this week. We're going to take a look at extremism and how our information environment is driving it. But first, I check in with my Tech Policy Press colleagues, including Romy Geller, a student and researcher in the Center for Media Engagement at UT Austin, and Tech Policy Press co-founder Brian Jones. I asked Romy about a fascinating paper we wrote about on Tech Policy Press that looks at the concept of positive energy in China, a notion that has seen broad adoption in Chinese political discourse on social media that refers to the phenomenon in which social media users have internalized the interests of the state as their own good, influencing the way they understand and share information related to events such as the pandemic. Led by Kong Lu, a computer scientist at City University of Hong Kong and a team of researchers, this study conducted a qualitative review of interviews with 33 Chinese citizens located across China between February and May 2020. The interviewees all utilized a diverse range of information sources, but most regarded positive energy content as desirable, even necessary, during the pandemic. Here's Romy. So the paper talks about how they were seeing positive and negative energy in the in the COVID reporting in terms of how it makes an individual feel. And some people reported that even if they knew that the information they were receiving wasn't 100% correct, they were still drawn and engaged more with the positive, with the content that had more positive energy um, because they thought it was more beneficial for them as um, an individual in the society. So you see this kind of focus on on valence over veracity. So the, the kind of like impact of the content on society as opposed to necessarily a focus on its truth. They've done 33 interviews. They've got multiple ones with, uh, you know, various folks from across economic strata in China. You know, it really looks like sort of some of the interviewees, how do they think, how do they feel about censorship? It showed that the majority of interviewees exhibited pro-censorship attitudes, and they agreed that it was a positive thing that was happening and it was helping the society, and they wanted to maintain the positive energy they were receiving. They also said that it was contributing to social stability and efficiency in communication, which I found really interesting. Thanks, Remy. Brian, how about you? What are you looking at this week? Hey, Justin. So it's been a couple of years since this topic has really been in the news, but net neutrality is back in the news this week. For those of you that don't know, net neutrality essentially means that telecommunication companies across the country can slow down traffic to certain websites or charge extra for tiered levels of web services. Back in 2008, the FCC decided to end net neutrality laws at the federal level. Well, almost immediately after that, California passed SB 822, which is known as the California Internet Consumer Protection and Net Neutrality Act of 2018. Fast forward three years, almost two and a half years, and the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of California has ruled that the California law is, in fact, legal. So now we have two different versions of net neutrality in the United States. We have one for all 49 other states, and then we have net neutrality 
in California. So really interesting combination of what this will mean from a federalism perspective, but also what does this mean for tech companies that are getting started? And will we see more tech companies move to California to get started because of the fact that it allows them to have a better competition? Or is this going to be something that at the end of the day ends up being much more of a policy discussion than a real world implication? So why would, why would it um, favor a company moving to California? So essentially, the, the reason that it matters is that if you're a little company, you don't have the ability to pay to play. What net neutrality allows is that everybody should be on the same playing field. So think about it this way. If you're an upstart video sharing company and you basically are told you have to pay to play against Netflix, Netflix could possibly decide that they're able to do that and pay an extra amount to make sure that the content getting to your house is delivered extremely fast. But because you're a startup, you didn't pay that fee and your flow is really slow. And so now all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a second. Netflix is reliable. This new startup is not. It has nothing to do with the technology and everything to do with the, the regulation of how quickly information can flow through the internet. And so being in California, where now everybody's supposedly on this equal footing, will be really interesting to see what the impl- real world implications are here. Does it have any implications on the national picture around net neutrality? There are some other states that have passed similar laws. California's is definitely the, the broadest and most far-reaching. In fact, a lot of people actually think that the California version is significantly broader than even the federal version that was in place. Other states, Vermont, Washington, Oregon, have also passed laws similar, but not necessarily as far-reaching. Now, this will probably go to the Supreme Court, and then the question will be, do states have the ability to usurp the federal government's ability to set federal regulation when it comes to the internet? That would be my expectation on next steps here, and, and we'll be hearing more about this, I'm sure, in the, uh, the, the weeks and years to come. What about you, Justin? What are you seeing this week? So this week, I don't know if everybody got a chance to see these somewhat frightening deep fakes of, of Tom Cruise uh, out on the golf course or out on the lawn with the, with the golf clubs. Um, but this was a sort of set of videos came out on TikTok uh, from an account going by the account name at Deep Tom Cruise, uh, began posting video clips of him doing everything, uh, golfing, telling uh, jokes, going out into a clothing store in Italy, etc. Caught a lot of people's attention because these deep fakes were pretty convincing. Did you get a chance to see them, Brian? They're very realistic. They're not perfect. I think part of it is that the, the, the actor did a really good job, but it's also, this is the beginning of the future of deep fakes. And as Danielle Citron and Bobby Chesney have talked about, we're going to see this start playing into the political space pretty soon and the liar's dividend where people are going to start saying that real things are fake and fake things are real. And that line of what is true and false is going to become really complicated for for a lot of people very soon. Yeah, I think even the casual observer could tell that these weren't 
quite real videos. Um, you could make out some of the inconsistencies and incongruities in the in the video that betrayed the fact that they were in fact deepfakes. But it doesn't really matter. They were entertaining, and that account, the at deep Tom Cruise account, has apparently amassed close to two hundred thousand followers. Of course, one of the biggest problems with deepfakes right now, in terms of their application, is in pornography. And uh, in Britain, there's a new law that's just been introduced to outlaw the use of deepfake technology to produce pornography that features people who have not consented to be depicted in that pornography. Um, but it seems to be something that needs to be addressed uh, everywhere. Well, thank you both. Have a good weekend. You too. Thank you. Our show today will focus on extremism. We're going to hear a discussion hosted by the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab titled Reclaiming Reality, De-Radicalization and Rehabilitation After the January 6th Attack. But before we get into it, I wanted to share the opening testimony that Emily Bell, founding director of the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia Journalism School, shared this week in a subcommittee on communications and technology hearing for the Committee on Energy and Commerce in Congress. The committee hearing was titled Fanning the Flames, Disinformation and Extremism in the Media. I think Emily's diagnosis sets the stage for the broader conversation. And now we have uh, our last uh, presenter, Ms. Bell, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you, Ranking Member and Distinguished Members of the Subcommittee. And thanks for having me here today to speak about this incredibly important issue. I also want to thank the journalists and researchers working in this area with a, a extraordinary lack of data. And I hope that this is something that we can also address, which is why we know so little about what actually happens in our information environment when we have such abundant material often trapped in the servers of our largest technology companies. Uh, we've heard about how uh, both the tragic uh, existential events uh, that faced America this year uh, were accompanied by the circulation of widespread and often politicized misinformation. Uh, conservative cable news channels often amplified a president uh, who was notorious for uh, spreading misinformation himself, uh, he had 30,000 fact-checked statements during his presidency, 15,000 of the, the false statements during his presidency, 15,000 of those occurred in this last crucial year. Whilst we're here, that, here to discuss the role of uh, the news media, I just want to emphasise uh, that the digital context is just as important. The influence of what we once thought of as mainstream media, I don't think can be any longer separated uh, in any way from the digital environment in which we all swim. Misinformation, it's a systemic problem, it affects all, and I wholeheartedly endorse the view this is not a partisan issue. We see it in different geographies and right across the political spectrum operating in the same way. We see content which is produced perhaps by cable news, can be amplified and discussed by white supremacists and militia groups that lurk in online corners of the internet. We see conspiracy theories about the coronavirus that make it to cable talk shows that still exist uncorrected on social media. Broadcasts that get just a few thousand viewers in real time circulate clips and posts that reach millions more. 
Some of this is the result of policy decisions and an environment that we've created for a thriving media market. A 40-year path of deregulation has transformed the US media landscape in both economic and political terms. Rollback of regulations has liberated the market, but taken with it some of the safeguards and support for a more varied, localized media. Digital media and the lowering of barriers has helped to elevate previously marginalized and ignored voices, and it's made our public discourse much more diverse. But an open market without regulation will always favor bad actors over good. In financial markets, this is known as Gresham's Law. Those with ethics are inhibited in ways that those without ethics are not. It's also worth saying that in an open market, we talk about more speech uh, being a corrective. Too often, voices we really need to hear are silenced by harassment and drowned out by electronic amplification. Whilst all news, national news media, and particularly polarized opinionated news has flourished, uh, local, new, local trusted news provision has really declined, as we've already heard. Local newsroom staff have halved in the past 15 years, and there are now over 1,800 markets without any local news at all uh, in the United States. Unfortunately, coronavirus has been an accelerant for this. This is something we track at my research center at Columbia University. We know that we've lost another 100 or so outlets just in the course of the last year. There's really a need for American democratic institutions to identify and work together on the priorities uh, that would mitigate this kind of extremism and misinformation. Solutions encouraging a different news media environment should be central, I think, to our thinking. Finding the means to fund and sustain more independent local reporting are a burning priority. Civic journalism, representative of the communities it serves, should be established and strengthened through a reform agenda centered, I think, on the information rights of all communities. We talk about the information needs, but I think that they should really be thought of rights. The right to hear good information. Mistrust of the media doesn't just exist in polarized pockets either. It also exists within communities who've been ignored or misrepresented by mainstream media for decades. The opportunities to correct this cannot and should not be ignored. And I believe that they're an essential part of throwing a fire blanket on these flames that we're talking about today of extremism and division. I also believe that it is not just down to individual choice or even the free market and choices made by companies. I believe that there is a policy role here, which is not about infringing the First Amendment, but which is about strengthening ways in which we can have a more vibrant, truthful news environment. Thank you very much. The assault on Congress was the direct result of a month-long effort rooted in disinformation, promoted by Donald Trump, coordinated by some of his most fervent conspiratorial supporters, and incorporating a wide range of supporting groups. Now, we'll hear a dialogue between civil society leaders in the fields of domestic extremism, counter-radicalization, and internet culture on how to combat violent domestic extremism following the January 6th attack on the Capitol. 
This conversation features Amarnath Amarasingham, an assistant professor in the School of Religion at Queen's University, Christina Lopez, a senior research analyst with Data and Society, QAnon Anonymous podcast co-host Travis View, and the DFR Labs research fellow Jared Holt. Here's Jared. My name's Jared Holt. I'm a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. I focus a lot on domestic extremism and how it interacts with the internet. I'm really excited to have you all join us for this conversation today. Uh, It's a topic that's been at the forefront of the national zeitgeist for some time now, uh, due in no small part uh, to the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And with that, I'm going to turn to Amar. The first question that I think we should try to answer here are the distinctions between groups, because it wasn't really one coherent, cohesive group that attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. It was a a combination of groups. So what lines can we draw between the different groups? And on the flip side, what kind of uniting strings tie them all together? Yeah, no, uh, it's a very important question. I think some uh, initial analysis is starting to come out about this as well from the uh, Anti-Defamation League, uh, George Washington's program on extremism and so on. Um, I think of the you know hundreds or so that were uh, analyzed by some of these uh, think tanks, what they basically found was uh, quite a few, somewhere around 25 to 30 percent uh, that we know of so far um, were linked to the Oath Keepers, uh, groups like the Proud Boys, um, Three Percenters, which are kind of much more far right, um, sometimes openly neo-Nazi organizations. Um, alt-right groups like the Groiper Army, uh, which is a kind of white supremacist uh, movement linked to Nick Fuentes and and uh, so on. And then there's this kind of nebulous support uh, for the QAnon movement as well within all wrapped up in this uh, group of people. Uh, the vast majority, at least from the initial analysis, seem to be um, this kind of nebulous pro-Trump MAGA crowd. I mean, it's not entirely sure... <clears throat> Um, how to think about them yet, right? Is that, are they kind of uh, loosely linked to some of these organizations or are they just kind of, uh, they went there to kind of protest the election outcome, but weren't necessarily uh, self-identified in terms of, in terms of white supremacist or in terms of uh, the far right and so on. Um, I think in terms of similarities, um, one thing to think about is the is the nature of the Trump administration over the last four years and what they've done to kind of public trust in the country, right? And and so public trust in the media, public trust in government institutions, public trust in medicine, public trust in science um, have all been impacted by the Trump rhetoric um, and has basically opened up um, uh, much more kind of uh, space for a lot of this conspiratorial kind of thinking to take hold. And I think the consequences of that we'll be seeing for some time. Moving on from that, I'll go to Christina now. What's your understanding of the scale of radicalization in the United States, both in terms of extremist movements, things like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, and also kind of the general public's complacency, uh, maybe tacit support, we could say fairly, of those kind of extremist ideologies and movements and groups? I think that we have always known that there at some level of extremism has always been prevalent in the fringes and within the spectrum, like Ram said earlier, within the spectrum of radicalization, you will always see that there will be certain avenues or pathways towards radicalization. What we are seeing right now is the ability to scale that up and the ability of finding 
different pathways towards radicalization. We definitely have seen this scale as, as content and content that contains radical ideologies starts permeating and becomes a lot more mainstream, a lot more easy to find. And one of the details that I think is really interesting in terms of assessing the scale is that you have a structure of permission, of normalization that wasn't present before that you could identify specifically uh, a Trump administration that was never very keen on establishing where the boundaries were and what was permissible to do and, and which groups were actually on the extremism side. There was a lot of opportunistic use of these groups and these affiliations when it was convenient and when it wasn't. And so I do think that the, the permission structure that habilitated a lot of folks that would have not allowed themselves to be in a situation where violence was normalized was uh, advanced definitely through social media and definitely through some cable networks. So building on the point that Christina just made, Travis, um, you know, online radicalization does not exist in a vacuum. It has all kinds of different arms and legs that reach into other parts of our society including specifically news media and, uh, you know, politics itself. As Christina was saying, the Trump administration throughout the 2016 campaign and even throughout its administration never really seemed to be very keen on establishing a firm line between what would be considered fringe and what was permissible. I'm curious in your experience and your research, how have you seen political influences. I'm talking media figures, activists, politicians. Uh, how have they influenced the general temperature within extremist or conspiracy-driven movements online? Sure. I mean, um, well, speaking of like QAnon specifically, I mean, what, what energizes QAnon followers more than anything else, in my experience, is validation. Uh, they they love, uh, you know, feeling like they are uh, making an impact. They're influencing powerful people in some uh, significant way. And this can come in, come in the form of either praise or opposition. When we're talking about praise, I think what's, you, uh, what's unique about QAnon is that it uh, is that the QAnon followers receive praise uh, directly from President Trump. Uh, Trump said that uh, QAnon followers are people who love the country, people who are very much uh, against pedophilia, um, and uh, it's also received uh, validation. And the fact that QAnon followers uh, love validation has been obviously been exploited by some bad actors who are able to build an audience by giving these people validation and sort of uh, ensuring that they are, you know, that they are uh, that they are on the right track and this this opposition that this validation can also come in the form of sort of uh news media coverage that sort of uh that paints them that paints them in certain ways because they they love to be opposed because they love this comes from the their their basic troll ethos their their uh the fact that it was first formed on 4chan they love uh they love getting a reaction out of people uh, because they essentially they imagine themselves to be digital warriors who are fighting an information war to get out the truth so in that sense, um, you know, if there's a certain kind of media coverage that paints them in a certain way, they really, really, really love. And this is, by the way, why I think it's really important that uh, uh, that some media coverage really uh, emphasizes narratives about the pain that being a member of QAnon 
uh, involves and um, in, and uh, the passed out. There's a there's a woman named Ashley Vanderbilt, who's a former QAnon follower, who's making a round, making the rounds, talking about her uh, journey getting out of QAnon, which I think is a uh, more more productive way in uh, in recovering this topic. Yeah, I think that that makes an important point. Uh, oftentimes, the people that are plunging down these rabbit holes, something I've been trying to stress is that many of them believe that they're doing a good thing, that they are fighting for, you know, they think that they're heroes fighting to save the country, right? But unfortunately, this comes with very devastating effects to their personal relationships, sometimes their employment, et cetera. Amar, I'm going to take it back to you. Uh, you know, now that we've kind of established the state of play, I want to start to shift the conversation towards trying to maybe change things or, or you know, salvage some of this. Uh, you know, is it possible to get individuals pulled away from delusions like QAnon or extremist ideologies and eventually rehabilitate them to be, you know, productive members of society who, you know, are, are no longer dangerous and is there any sort of established patterns on ways that are effective at getting people out of these movements? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question because a lot of the research that exists on disengagement or de-radicalization um, is usually linked to groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS or, you know, uh, much more hardcore kind of neo-Nazi groups. Um, and what we know from that research, if um, and I'm not sure that the findings of that are entirely applicable with a group like QAnon or with a movement like QAnon, let's say, um, you know, one of the reasons that a lot of people leave is losing faith in the ideology, right? And and so uh, the, the kind of black, and what you hear from a lot of former neo-Nazis, for example, is that living constantly in this kind of black and white worldview where the in-group is constantly embattled and whether where you're constantly at war with this kind of out-group becomes exhausting, right? It, it, after 5, 10, 15 years in, the, in, in, a, in, a, in that kind of environment, um, it can quite, it, it can be quite um, exhausting. And so another reason people leave and, and, and cracks start to form is significant others come into their life. And so, you know, there's often the story that uh, a friend of mine tells who was a former neo-Nazi that he spent his entire life thinking that Jewish people were uh, secretly controlling the world. And then when he, when he actually met one, um, that started him on the path out of the movement. And so that's kind of, you know, uh, losing faith in the ideology becomes one of the reasons. Um, a second is uh, group, uh, like leadership failure, which um, in, this, in the sense of QAnon, um, I'm not sure what that looks like, or, or you know, so it, it, you're, you're kind of told that members of your in-group, members of your movement are honorable, selfless, um, authentic people, and then um, once they start backstabbing, once they start uh, showcasing their selfishness, um, and, and that, that can often lead to people leaving these movements. Um, and the other one, which um, often isn't talked about, is, is just kind of battle fatigue, burnout, aging, getting older, um, wanting to kind of move on with your life, um, which I think we might see more of in the QAnon space um, as we go forward. But um, a lot of the findings, I guess, in the DRAD disengagement space um, are, are going to be neat, are going to have to be adapted to deal with some of these more nebulous kind of fringe conspiracy movements because it's not entirely. Um, a one-to-one -one ratio. The other thing I'll say is um, much of the research does draw a distinction between de-radicalization and disengagement, right? And so 
if our ultimate goal is to just prevent these people from engaging in acts of violence, it might be that they continue to believe certain things, right? It might be that they continue to believe in um, crazy ideas, but they just have found another avenue to, by which to address these grievances and, and, and um, talk about them. Um, and so we need to decide as a society whether we're okay with uh, millions of people um, continuing to believe crazy things as long as they don't um, do anything about it. So that distinction, I think, is uh, important as well. Travis, I'll, I'll go to you, Amar. That's a, a really great point, distinguishing between de-radicalization and disengagement. But Travis, uh, you know, as far as QAnon goes, because, you know, QAnon is not a, I guess, traditionally structured extremist movement, uh, you know, the type of things that have been studied in the past, like uh, Amar was talking about. I guess drawing from your personal experience and your personal uh, witness and research on some sort of, uh, you know, delusion that's grown to a massive scale like this. Have you seen any trend lines and what's effective in getting people to unplug? Like, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, is, is it possible to either de-radicalize or disengage at any sort of large scale with, you know, using something like QAnon as an example? Uh yeah, I mean, I think yeah, it's really important to like draw a distinction between de-radicalization and disengagement because it's one of the things that's just very unique and uh, I also kind of troubling about QAnon is even though uh, it has, according to polling, possibly tens of millions of adherents just to this this country, uh, the 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 casualties that are directly as a result of QAnon is actually much much lower than some other domestic extremist groups. So they're actually very uh, generally lightly engaged. Now, it's not to downplay the threat or anything like that, or but uh, just just comparatively, um, they have um, they have uh, fewer 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 casualties. Um, but I think that what's kind of unique about QAnon followers is that they seem to always fold whenever they 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 engage any kind whenever they come uh, come up across any kind of serious consequences we we see this repeatedly um for example uh there's Ed, uh was it Edgar Madison Welch who was the uh Pizzagate follower who was uh, sort of the, which was the predecessor to Pizzagate to uh, QAnon uh who fired that shot into comet comet ping pong and served a, a couple of years in prison as a consequence of that um he wrote an apology letter there's also the case of Matthew Wright um who was uh charged with uh convicted of terrorism uh, um, for having an armed standoff on the Hoover Dam Bridge, also wrote an apology letter. There's a Jacob Chansley, uh, aka who is better known as the Q Shaman, uh, who is, uh, according to his lawyer, at least very apologetic. Um, now, yeah, you may uh, consider these to be simply defense strategies, but it's not a given that an extremist will fold and apologize for their actions and uh, walk back what they did, and then, and then, in some cases, in the case of Jacob Chansley, um, say that they've been disillusioned with President Trump as a consequence of that. So, there are many cases of extremists who are defiant and unapologetic. Take, for example, um, uh, the neo-Nazi group Golden Dawn. After a few of their members were convicted in Greece, uh, they were they were still very very defiant. So it seems what I think was helpful about QAnon, at least, is is the fact that uh, whenever they bump into the real world, at least, they seems that they um, they they are willing to. Uh, not engage with that that belief system as much or anymore, or profess belief in that that that, that belief system. That's not to suggest that incarceration or anything like that is a solution to the problem, but it does suggest I think that their beliefs are a lot more loosely held uh, at the end of the day uh, than some other more violent extremist groups. 
Christina, I want to go to you because a lot of the conversation that tends to take place, whether it's on cable news channels, social media, and probably rightfully so, is focused on social media. A lot of this conversation revolves around things like deplatforming, moderation. You said something at the opening of the panel that I want to ask you to elaborate on, which is, you know, what is social media's role in scaling radicalization? Because, you know, like you mentioned, extreme groups have existed seemingly forever, Um, but their prominence and uh, the spotlight on them has grown and so have their numbers or seemingly numbers of sympathizers. So this is a this is a tricky thing to answer without trying to give media effects like the the ability of immediately convincing anyone that watches something of what media is saying and we have through through years moved away from that ex- media theory like media effects theory that folks just believe automatically everything they they read or consume in media but we understand that in order to be persuasive the media that is persuasive is that that has a social component a a positive social interaction and that together with the messaging can be more persuasive and what you see with social media is that you have given influencers the ability of creating these parasocial relationships with huge swaths of the population with gigantic audiences and what that's what this creates is that you have a message that is together coupled with that positive social interaction with that ability of creating community the the socio-effective component of being pulled into these groups i don't think we can leave it behind it's it's just as important i believe as the ideological component or of where you lie in terms of of the spectrum right or left it's important because a lot of these folks you could identify that they were vulnerable to you know this sort of influence because of of other voids socially effective and and the fact that they find a community and establish a parasocial relationship with a figure that they start trusting that in this case you know can be a, a lot of influencers um and and micro celebrities within this huge um group of very distinct and diverse people and so i think that that you can't abandon the that side of the analysis that, that at the end of the day like yes this is media that is being consumed that has certain effects but it wouldn't be as powerful if it wasn't for the socio-effective the the parasocial relationships that social media allows micro celebrities to create with with huge audiences the other thing too is that often if we only focus on um social media we leave aside the social component the the community creation the the ways in which these movements act a lot like a fandom and in the ways in which the riot in a lot of ways was a, a manifestation in real life of a lot of just content being produced and being consumed and i think it's interesting that we started by kind of distinguishing between theoreticalization and disengagement. I think engagement um, as it relates to social media is kind of at the, at, at the center of this. A lot of this rhetoric has escalated and reached a lot of people because of its ability to draw engagement or awaken a reaction in audiences. I think that in a lot of ways, it is the incentives that 
have been put to keep folks engaged that have had some impact in the ways that rhetoric has radicalized a lot of folks or that has escalated from normalizing positions that would have been untenable before. And a quick follow-up question for you, Christina. Uh, you know, as uh, Democrats in the Biden administration, they, you know, in reaction to January 6th, have made these statements about wanting to take domestic extremism seriously as an issue in this country. You know, I'm, I'm curious your general thoughts on, you know, there's a variety of ways to fight that, right? There's the tech component, there's the local community component, there's, you know, a, to extent a law enforcement component. Like, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, given social media's kind of, uh, would it be fair to say enabling role uh, in, in swelling the size of this issue? Kind of what degree, like, like how should, you know, a administration that wants to tackle this issue meaningfully think about the role of social media in gearing and designing its approach to this issue? I think that it starts by looking at this as a complex problem that you can't police your way out of. You can't surveil necessarily your way to, out of. I think I agree with your assessment that for a long time, the importance or the influence of radical domestic extremism has not been taken seriously. Um, I, I do think that a, to a degree, the there has been a, a wishful thinking, perhaps, but a willingness to be a lot more forgiving uh, when terrorism looks white, when it's domestically grown, um, when it's being manifested as just a lot of charged rhetoric. I think that that changing how so like changing in general how law enforcement is assessing these groups is necessary, but it's not the only way. And only policing would would have terrible consequences. I think that in terms of social media, we have to go back to thinking, why do people post at all? There's a component of self-presentation that you are performing online. And there's a, a component that is, you know, being part of a group, the, the reinforcement of a group identity. And I think the reinforcement of, of, of group identity has become crucial lately. And that united sense of grievance has indeed moved a lot of people to organize and mobilize in ways that we hadn't seen before. But they all stem from what we are doing online, which is just self-presenting ourselves and reinforcing our identity and our belonging to certain groups. And, and from that, I think that we can start talking about the role of social media in enabling perhaps not the, the extremism or the ideology, which already existed, but in giving it crucial tools to amplify, reach, and normalize, allowing a lot of people to connect and, and with similarly you know, aligned folks that they wouldn't have found otherwise. So I think that there is definitely that component of platform governance that we cannot ignore. We know that deplatforming has positive effects, but it can't be the only tool. It is a blunt uh, approach and it has unintended consequences. So we have to include some nuance in how we approach these things. We have to look at what monet monetizing or demonetizing can do for de-escalating uh, rhetoric. We have to look at what is the role that algorithmic amplification is playing here and what is the role that recommendation algorithms 
are playing in allowing a lot of groups with distinct identities to coalesce around one big idea and move and mobilize in the real world towards achieving something. We have to also identify which ways the which are flags that we can look at in, in terms of social media users that can inform a little bit where a person is in their journey of radicalization. Is it time that they're spending online? Is it interactions? Is it isolation in their real life, in the real world communities? So though these are complex problems and policing alone is not going to get us out of this. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the, the, uh, to, to kind of <clears throat> add to Christina's point, I think we, we need to step back a little bit to ask why some of these messages are resonating, right? And and I often use the example of the, uh, of the guy at the corner holding an end is near sign. Um, usually he's just there by himself. But if I if I were to go two weeks from now and all of a sudden there's a hundred people around him, I wouldn't ask about the message, right? The messages remain the same for the entire two weeks. It's just now more people are listening to it. So then the question becomes, why are they listening to it? What changed in the last two weeks to make this message resonate more? And so I think we do need to ask a kind of society-wide question of what is, why are these movements on the rise? Why is conspiratorial thinking on the rise? Um, part of it is, you know, uh, we saw a huge spike in the pandemic where um, it, it, it kind of had a disruption effect on a lot of people's sense of normalcy. Um, and so we do need to ask a kind of broader question of, of the messages often remain the same. I mean, the KKK from uh, from the early 20th century is uh, the, the message of the far right hasn't particularly changed, but the demand has changed over time. And so um, why what what is leading to some of these messages resonating more now than they did, you know, <clears throat> five, 10 years ago? Um, and so I, I, and I the, the second point is um, we have this kind of tendency to think that DRAD programs are somehow a post 9-11 invention. But keep in mind, like the Norway exit program designed for the neo-Nazi community, neo-Nazi community was dates back to 1997. The Swedish program dates back to 1998. And so we do have kind of um, uh, examples of how this has been done in other parts of the world that might be useful for uh, using domestically as well. That pivots uh, to my next question, which is for you, actually, which is, you know, a lot of people are maybe hearing about CVE, as it's called, Countering Violent Extremism Programs, Practices, Initiatives for the first time after January 6th attack on the Capitol. Can you give us a landscape of kind of what is out there, what's been tried, what works, what doesn't, and kind of what the limitations or the gaps might be there? Sure. Yeah, it's a big question, but I mean, I think um, that the conversation about CVE in the U.S. in particular started around 2004, um, and then you had several programs and policies put into place post uh, 2011. Um, over time, you had a kind of very law enforcement centric approach, but then that got scaled back uh, with what became known as the uh, Disruption and Early Engagement Project, which or or Deep, um, which tried very hard to say, okay, you know the people that we're dealing with, the people that we're looking at are a problem. They are kind of going down certain rabbit holes that we don't like, but they haven't necessarily crossed the legal threshold for arrest. So do we just kind of abandon them to the community and, and go about our way? Or is there some way to kind of um, do some sort of intervention that might help here? And, and so I think there have been different initiatives um, across the country that have tried to do that. Um, the kind of pushback that we've seen over time for CVE 
um, the largest complaint, of course, is that it was entirely focused on the Muslim community. Um, and so a lot of the Muslim activist groups and NGOs complained about government overreach, um, uh, targeting and so on. Uh, when Life After Hate, one of the uh, main groups in the U.S. that deals with kind of far right formers um, lost its funding uh, in 2016, that was used as evidence for why uh, this is, you know, this is very much the case that the entire focus of the CVE uh, programming is focused on the Muslim community. Um, the other kind of difficulty that I think will still um, approach within the Biden administration is the relationship between CVE programs as, as, with government and law enforcement. A lot of these programs are run by government or run by law enforcement or funded by the government. Um, and that, of course, within the Muslim community has led to a lot of distrust about true intentions of these programs and so on which I think will be likely replicate, replicated um, if we're dealing with the far right and so, uh, as well. Um, the other thing that we've talked about earlier is a lot of these programs are targeted towards young people. Um, and so the vast majority of CV programming deals with kind of 20-year-old young men who are drawn to, you know, either neo-Nazi groups or um, jihadist groups. And I think particularly now with the changing landscape, we're seeing a lot of people who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, who are drawn to these movements. And it's an, it's not entirely clear what a CVE program looks like for a 60-year-old, right? And and so um, whether we're talking about mentorship programs and after-school programs, none of that is relevant anymore. Um, and so the, the, I think the Biden administration is going to have to think through um, the changing landscape of extremism and then how to do that in a way that doesn't kind of replicate the mistakes of the last uh, decade or so. So... This last one, I'll open this up to the whole panel. Um, you know, what lessons do existing U.S. CVE practices offer for the Biden administration? Or actually, I'll zoom this out. Actually, you know, the fight against domestic extremism isn't necessarily a new thing. It's also maybe, arguably, not entirely equipped for the scale or the variety of causal factors that are happening here. What practices that have, have been going on recently can the Biden administration learn from? Also, on the flip side of that, is there anything uh, like related to messaging that maybe the Biden administration should avoid? Travis, I'll start with you because I've seen, you know, listening to QAnon Anonymous, your show, I've, I've heard you all talk on occasion about ways that politicians or, uh, you know, media outlets have described or discussed QAnon in ways that didn't seem particularly helpful? Yeah, um, I think that, yeah, I think whenever I yeah I approach sort of the QAnon radicalization, uh, I always approach, I always uh, talk about in the ways in which is it, which is a, a tragedy because again these these QAnon followers they want to be heroic they want to think that they're doing battle and they want to feel like they're arm in arm with allies and they're supporting absolute evil and then in this in this sense um, I know that there's a lot of um, you know uh, sometimes we get critiqued for because we it, we act as if that we are you know too sympathetic to people who are who are radicalized in some sense but we have to remember uh, sometimes acting sympathetic towards some of these QAnon followers especially when they aren't actually uh, uh, particularly dangerous is the most irritating thing you can do towards them but it's also uh, very very effective uh, because it shows them that there that there that there is that there is a, a sort of a path out um, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's very very uh, you know uh, challenging. I, yeah, I would just say that yeah, the the best um, sort of way to talk about it is the, is to emphasize the pain that comes with believing this nonsense, and to you know encourage other people who are perhaps um, who are who are affected family members of QAnon followers uh to to you know to reach out to them as as family members as friends because this is really the most effective way that uh we, that we've seen people get out you know it's like they're not going to listen to uh, a podcast host and they're probably not going to listen to some government bureaucrat but they will often listen to a family member who cares about them not always it sucks but uh, that is the often the best chance of getting someone to realize that they are on the wrong path i'll go to you christina you know are there any practices to countering extremism that you've seen that you thought were particularly effective that maybe, you know, a Biden administration or Democrats seeking to counter this should take note of, or on the inverse, anything you've seen that you didn't think was effective? I think that I, w I want to echo Travis here in that I do not think that a reaction that demonizes those who haven't crossed the threshold from the radical ideology towards violence, like before they have crossed, you know, the, the threshold of illegality, I do not think that rhetoric that fully demonizes these, in many cases, victims of uh, someone else's exploits of social media affordances um, is the right way. Because just like a, a structure of permission was needed for some folks to cross over from, you know, being kind of a passive observer of right-wing politics and a consumer of right-wing media towards being in person at a violent event. And so I do think that there is also a need for a better conversation in a, in a permission structure for folks that want to take a step back and rejoin society and, and, main, and the mainstream in a way. And, and that, helps through rhetoric. I do think that the Biden administration has a huge challenge um, when it comes to CBE approaches, mostly because like Amarn said, a lot of the times these are these are policies and programs that are led from law enforcement. And in a lot of ways, radicalization has also affected our law enforcement groups. And, and that is also something that an administration like the Biden administration will have to contend with and figure out how how this works when the some of the, you know, forces that have been traditionally occupied for CV approaches, individuals within them are on the radical side. And so that that's another challenge that I think um, the administration has to transparently deal with. And Damar, to you. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think a lot of what I see going forward as as probably necessary, kind of immediately, is is um, very up upstream initiatives, right? Um, and things that that people kind of roll their eyes at now, digital literacy, um, uh, things like that, where and and kind of rebuilding trust in some of these government and social institutions that have basically been decimated over the last uh, four years or so. Trust in medicine, <clears throat> trust in science, trust in the media, trust in government. Um, we know what 
there's mountains of studies on conspiratorial thinking that that basically show that there are real world consequences to believing these things right people tend to vote less people tend to not vaccinate their kids people tend to not volunteer or do any kind of civic engagement um and so i think the long term consequences for kind of democratic functioning in the US uh from from the mainstreaming of these kinds of ideas is going to be immense and and, and so i'm 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 less concerned i think about the kind of people who are radicalized because there are already programs that that kind of address some of those individuals but i'm more concerned about the mainstream loss of trust and um uh kind of conspiratorial thinking that has in, infected mainstream society which i think is going to have deep um consequences um on on the kind of individual level i do think we need to because there's so many <laughs> i do need to think i do need to i i think we need to kind of um disaggregate whether we're talking about hardcore members of these groups um kind of supporters and sympathizers we know from the uh, studies of kind of al qaeda and and jihadist groups that um the nature of individual involvement is fundamentally important uh or understanding the nature of involvement is fundamentally important for de-radicalization if you're talking to just some just someone who's kind of hanging out at the edges of these groups your approach to them to get them out of these groups is going to be very different than if they have some sort of leadership role right and so um i think just understanding the landscape of some of what's happening is is going to be quite important because unlike uh al qaeda supporters in the us which is um, which is minuscule um this is a, a kind of massive problem um and so uh that's going to be difficulty going difficult going forward as travis mentioned i think getting families involved is quite important and the norway kind of exit program did that um quite effectively the challenge much like what christina said is that um if you're dealing with groups like uh the oath keepers or whatever um sometimes the families are the ones who taught the young people these ideas to begin with and so um you're going to have kind of an added difficulty there just like you would with law enforcement involvement so. so we are running up on the end of the hour here um i have one last closing question and i'll open it up to the whole panel what do you anticipate in the next 90 days to 6 months in the wake of the capital riot additionally do you see a path forward for public private partnerships that can aid in de-radicalization and fighting disinformation offline in a way that doesn't trample civil liberties i i mean i think a lot of that groundwork has already been laid with with the fight against isis for example isis online <clears throat> and so a lot of the lessons learned from that period can be applied and and continued with with what we're seeing now with the far right um there are problems there which will take a long time to unpack but um i do think there are lessons there going forward there might be an opportunity to right now that the attention is on the topic like force for more accountability of social platforms while knowing that that is not the only solution and that that is not the only way and uh Travis what do you think uh yeah i mean yeah that's uh that's a very difficult question um yeah i think that yeah moving forward again i think more outreach more um sort of understanding providing paths and stories about de-radicalization is i think is the best thing that the the media can do at least yeah and to the respect of the next uh 90 days to 6 months i think it was um you know currently the far right and extremist right is in a, a kind of a state of suspension right now if you will um you know this universal condemnation federal scrutiny deplatforming law enforcement investigations it's kind of 
put things in a weird spot for them. Eventually, though, it will come together and it will kick back into gear and probably sooner than a lot of us think. So, um, you know, something I've been stressing to people is having the conversations now and doing the, you know, taking the actions that we can in this moment to make sure the next time something like January 6th happens, that we're better prepared. And I think this kind of conversation is the perfect place to start. It's, the, it's exactly the kind of conversation we should be having both within government, uh, civil society, and also, you know, more broadly speaking. So with that, we're coming up on the end of the hour. I want to give a big thank you to our panelists, Christina Lopez, Travis View, and Amarnath Amarsingham. From the DFR lab to the audience, thanks for joining. That's it for this week's Sunday show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at Justin at Tech Policy Press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, Emily Bell, Amarnath Amara Singham, Christina Lopez, Travis View, Jared Holt, and Graham Brookie. Have a great week and thanks for listening. Tech Policy Press.